Welcome to the Legal Download Podcast, a rundown of the latest issues impacting your business from Kelly Dry. Welcome to the Kelly Dry Legal Download. I'm Chris Ripsaman, Communications Manager at Kelly Dry. And today we'd like to welcome Dave Frilla, a partner at Kelly Dry and a litigator and our government affairs advocate focusing on environmental and regulatory issues. Hi, Dave. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris. How about yourself? Oh, pretty well, thanks. Good. Now, recently, you represented a group of 11 plaintiffs who filed suit in California opposing the ban on the import of alligator and crocodile products. Can you give us a little background on that case? Um, sure. We brought suit on behalf of 11 different participants in the supply chain for alligator and crocodile products that served the California market. That included farmers in Louisiana and Florida and meat processors, distributors and manufacturers from Texas, uh, boutiques on Rodeo Drive that sold alligator and crocodile products, smaller boutiques um, and online retailers in the Bay Area and a dist distributor and um, atelier from South Africa. So we had basically the, the supply chain um, from collection of alligators and crocodiles through their, their their ultimate sale here in the U.S. in California, which is one of the biggest markets in the world. They challenged uh, California Penal Code Section 653-0, which is a ban on the import into the state for commercial purposes, possession with the intent to sell, and sale of over 20 different uh animal species. But we, we challenged it relating to American alligator and certain species of crocodiles, uh, the commercially important species, uh, saltwater and Nile crocodile from certain countries. The trade in alligator and crocodile products is $100 million uh, a year in direct sales alone. Um, we filed the case in federal court in Sacramento. Uh, the reason that the case was filed now uh, is because uh, as of December or January 1st, 2020, the ban on alligators and crocodiles, which had been deferred uh, by the legislature, uh, became active again after almost 20 years. Our case involved uh, three claims, the supremacy clause or preemption, um, the commerce clause and the due process clause. Uh, we proceeded first on the supremacy clause, uh, the, our preemption claims. Um, we brought the case on December 10th, filed for a temporary restraining order, which was granted by stipulation um, soon after the case was filed. And just recently on October 13th, the judge, uh, Judge Mueller, Chief Judge Mueller, granted our motion for preliminary injunction. Right, now the, the ruling, you know, I've, I've heard that it could be potentially precedent setting. Could you really explain why there could be a, a basis for that? Well, Chris, in recent years, California has, uh, with, with uh, a considerable amount of notoriety, um, imposed trade bans on a wide range of different products, eggs, veal, foie gras, uh, for example, or uh, eggs from caged hens, that, that is. Um, and the courts in California have um, upheld the bans uh, this is um, at a preliminary injunction phase, so it's not final, but this is one of the uh, few cases where the plaintiffs have been able to uh, mount, a, mount an effective challenge against these California laws. And is it, is it common to get a ruling on the merits of preemption, or is that something that really is kind of out of the ordinary? Preemption rulings are are not that common. What they require is there to be a federal regime in place that basically leaves no room for a state to regulate. 
Interestingly here, in, in this case, preemption came by way of the Endangered Species Act. Normally we think of the Endangered Species Act as being a protective statute. Here in this instance, the Endangered Species Act promotes trade, um, sustainable trade. The preemption uh, argument uh, goes somewhat as follows. In 1979, the Endangered Species Act, uh, Congress amended it to provide for the United States to uh, officially participate in the Convention on Trade and Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna, that's called CITES, uh, to participate in the, in the worldwide CITES uh, management process, which provides for these sustainable trade approaches. There's three CITES appendices. Appendix two uh, provides for trade in, in species such as alligators and crocodiles. In addition to providing for um, trade under the CITES program, um, the Endangered Species Act also has a federalism provision, which is section 6F. And basically in, in relevant respects here, uh, the ESA says that a state can't prohibit what the federal government allows. Um, and that's uh, what, what happened here, uh, where the federal government, um, through special regulations um, under the Endangered Species Act, um, has authorized trade, a very, very tightly constricted trade in um, alligator and crocodile products. So it was this, the, 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 the Endangered Species Act uh, that has created this uh, federal preemptive regime. Okay, and you know, you, re you referenced the Endangered Species Act and, and CITES. Um, there were some experts who testified on behalf of your clients, some of whom seem a little counterintuitive uh, when you think about which side they're supporting in this. Can you give us a little more detail on some of those witnesses? Sure, um, we had, uh, it wasn't testimony because we haven't been at a trial or a live witness phase yet, but we've gotten declarations from um, some prominent international uh, scientists and conservationists. Um, two lead scientists from the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is the largest conservation organization in the world. Um, they're chair of, the croc of their crocodile specialist group and they're chair of the sustainable use and livelihoods group because uh, as we've explained, under, under CITES, it provides for sustainable trade, and this trade uh, needs to be comprehensive uh, throughout the world um, and, and not become a patchwork of, of states and countries opting out for it to be effective. Um, two former secretaries general of CITES, the, the, the head of, of the conservation organization in the 90s and the first half of the, uh, this century, um, also provided us declarations as, as the case progressed. Okay. Now, you know, some other people who are opposed to the ruling have said that this could provide a loophole for CITES. Um, is this really a realistic argument or is, you know, there any merit to it? CITES doesn't create a loophole. It, it creates uh, the trade regime itself. And again, that's sustainable trade, uh, Basically, what you have is a highly, highly managed uh, trade um, that prevents, frankly, loopholes uh, from being created where um, species can be uh, sort of not managed and then traded. Um, the trades, especially in alligators and crocodiles, is, is strictly monitored. 
one unique element for these two species are as soon as uh, the, the animals are, uh, are ready to enter commerce, the skins are tagged and they're, they're individually numbered. Um, the U.S. provides uh, specific tags, um, as do other countries. And these tags follow the animals throughout, or their skins, throughout the, the manufacturing process. Um, when you export skins for tanning in, in Europe, where a lot of the, the, the high-end tanning occurs, every single tag is accounted for on a, on a register. Uh, the tags remain on the product um, right up until the point of manufacture, um, at, at which point um, the documentation requirements that I had mentioned um, still apply. Uh, these species can only be imp imported into the U.S. through select ports. Um, they're detailed inspection protocols that follow all the way through. And it's, again, this trade that promotes conservation here, um, by creating a market, they provide a conservation incentive. Um, in Louisiana, for instance, um, alligators went from, um, in the 60s, being in the low thousands of, of remaining alligators to uh, many millions now, um, in part because there's been a conservation regime uh, and a trade regime that has uh, provided support for the management program. Um, one of our, uh, the, the Louisiana Attorney General's office um, also uh, has represented the Louisiana Department of Fish and Wildlife in, in this case, um, and other Louisiana uh, stakeholders also have participated um, the, their presence in the case is designed to show, and they do show, um, the, va the value and the importance of sustainable trade and, and alligators, the success story it's been uh, uh, for sustainable trade in, in, in those species as a conservation matter. Um, so too, uh, their conservation successes for, for crocodiles uh, around the world um, that have been traded under Appendix 2 to CITES. Um, there's a one one of the um, in some of the writings from um, one of our, our declarants talks about how uh, there was a situation where crocodiles would kill villagers at the watering hole, but that situation's changed to where uh, the villagers have a conservation uh, incentive to uh, maintain alligator populations rather than killing them in self-defense. Uh, the funds for uh, from the trade have provided for uh, working water in the in the village, so there's no need for there to be uh, sort of unsupervised killing of, of the crocodiles uh, as, as a matter of self-preservation. Okay. Now, what what do you see as the next steps for the case? You know, where do you see it going? The the next step is that the judge has has ruled on ruled on preliminary and on the matter on preliminary injunction um finding that we have uh pro will probably succeed uh on our claims relating to the alligator and that we're likely to succeed um on our claims relating to the crocodiles um there's a little bit of a difference in the federal regulations between alligators and crocodiles in terms of how uh the the, the trade is managed so we need to address those issues in follow-up briefing. Um, We're filing with the court uh, under the October 13th order, uh, a status report today, and the parties are 
agreeing that the next step should be summary judgment on the merits of the preemption claim. So what we'll do is we'll have briefing on that uh, issue if the court accepts our proposal um, through the first half of 2021. And then we'll be back in court uh, again on on the preemption issues. Okay. Maybe we can revisit this discussion back then and find out how it all turns out. Is there anything we haven't uh, talked about that you'd like to add? No, I, I think that I, I think the, the the final point that I would add is, is that just just to mention that um, Penal Code Section six fifty three O has been the subject of uh, litigation in the Ninth Circuit before. Um, that's actually a fairly strong circuit uh, for plaintiffs uh, such as we are. Uh, they have, at, at, at the circuit level, um, found preemption uh, for elephant products, uh, which are also covered by Section 653.0 and covered through um, the CITES trade regulations. Um, the court in out in the Eastern District of California back in 1979 um, also uh, had issued a permanent injunction against uh, applying 653.0 to alligator products. Um, that injunction had gotten lost to in the sands of time, um, certainly had been forgotten, uh, although the court reminded the parties of it. Um, it had been forgotten uh, in the governmental process by the time we came to 2006, uh, when there started to be uh, these legislative deferrals of uh, the of Section 653.0 for alligators. So we're operating um, not on a blank slate here, uh, which makes us hopeful. Great. Well, thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time. And that thank you this episode of the uh, Kelly Dry Legal Dialogue. For additional information on this and other topics, please visit kellydry.com. Kelly Dry has podcasts available through your podcast provider.